anyway, good evening. Uh, my name is uh, Fawaz Jajas, and I am a professor of Middle Eastern politics and international relations at LSE. This is my first year. It really gives me immense uh, pleasure uh, to introduce Ustaz Jill Kapel. Uh, Ustaz has a special meaning in Arabic, uh, <clears throat> more of a doctrinal sense. Uh, Jill is the uh, Philippe Roman Chair in uh, History and International Affairs at LSE Ideas for 2009-2010. Uh, as you all know, Jill does not really need much of an introduction. Uh, he is one of the leading scholars and commentators on Middle Eastern societies and Muslim societies and politics, uh, a liberal voice in the West about Islam and Muslim societies and politics. For some of you who do not really know much about his earlier works, uh, in particular Muslim Extremism in Egypt, published in the 1990s, and The Revenge of God, published in the 1990s as well, they are really classics. For some of us as graduate students, they were really critical, pivotal texts, uh, written in the uh, best scholarship tradition of sociological French tradition, delving uh, deep into the social structures, ideologies, social networks, and texts in Muslim societies and politics in order to understand and explicate uh, social movements. Uh, for today's lectures, as you know, it's about Muslim, Muslims in Europe or Muslim communities uh, in Europe. And again, Jill has written extensively on Muslim communities, not only in Europe, but also in North America as well. Uh, Allah is his, the, in the West was published in the, in, in the 1990s, Jill. Uh, again, I don't need to remind you that this is a very complex and controversial topic, controversial uh, topics. Uh, and I think it does not lend itself very easily to uh, very much scientific uh, inquiry. Uh, there exist plenty of misperceptions about uh, Muslim communities in Western societies, um, including Europe and North America. Uh, and I think here, if I want just to, I want to cite one particular survey and study to illustrate what I mean by there are plenty of misconceptions and misunderstandings and misperceptions about the Muslim communities in Europe. Just a, a very recent study done by the Open Societies, which examined the views and attitudes of uh, Muslims in Britain. And the study surveys about 2,000 uh, Muslims in Britain. And one of the major findings of the study done by the Open Society, it showed that 78% of Muslims in Britain consider themselves British citizens first and foremost. The British nationals, with all that entails. And also the 78% said that religion, religion, Islam, does not clash with or contradict that be, they are being uh, Britain nationals. And this particular study flies in the face of the dominant conventional wisdom that dominates the airways in Britain and, and also uh, in the West. And I think in this particular sense, many Muslims whom I talk to, and I talk to many Muslims throughout the world, in particular in Western societies in Europe and America, they feel very bitterly, they bitterly complain 
um, about the dominant discourse that exists about Islam and Muslims in the West, both in Europe and North America. Why they say, many Muslims, why uh, view Muslims through the prism of the war on terror? I mean, here you have two million Muslims in Britain. Why collectively lump the two million Muslims in Britain with, let's say, the one, two thousand radical Muslims that exist in Europe? Why many Muslims say that view Muslims through the prism of fear-mongering? Why many Muslims say view the Muslims through the prism of liability as opposed through the prism of being an asset enriching Western societies? Again, Jill has written extensively on Muslim communities, as I mentioned earlier, and has been actively engaged in the raging debate. Agree or disagree, his views and insights not only matter a great deal in this particular debate raging in the Western world, but I believe they enlighten and enrich this particular debate. Please join me in welcoming uh, Jill Kapel. Well, thank you very much, Fawaz. I mean, uh, you made me blush once again, and uh, I will not be able to live up to the expectations you have raised, but this is the name of the game. Um, the first um, problem would be with the title. Um, I've sort of refocused the whole thing. I'm not going to deal with Muslims in uh, modern Europe as a whole, but I'm going to focus on a comparison between Britain and France, which was the sort of the main bone of contention over the last years, uh, something which uh, now is far less a problem uh, because the two countries have made one step towards each other, I believe. And, uh, but in the Q&A session, I'd be glad to take questions about the Netherlands, uh, Denmark, or whatever, in, in case I know, uh, which is not always an, uh, a possibility. Um, you, uh, you, may, uh, you may remember then uh, when we had this, um, this law in France that did not allow uh, for uh, students in public schools to wear uh, what we call ostentatious uh, religious garments or signs, whether they be a uh, hijab or a cross or a yarmulke. Many voices uh, made themselves here in Britain saying that uh, this was the sign that France was a sort of a fascist assimilationist country. And uh, by the same token, when um, uh, there were riots in, in France in, uh, in the fall of 2005. Many in the States or in Israel uh, jeered at the French and said that it served them well, that they had refused to go to war on Iraq, in Iraq with the US and Britain. And now that uh, uh, Paris was turning into Baghdad on the Seine and that Ben Laden's brigades were rampaging and looting the outskirts, the poor outskirts of Paris. Um, maybe because um, those people who were setting fire on to cars were perceived collectively as Muslims. Um, they were not necessarily Muslims. They were, uh, most of them were uh, young, urban, poor. Uh, some of them definitely were Muslims, others were not, but there was no evidence at all that Ben Laden or Zawahiri or who have you had anything to do with that. It was 
mainly uh, a social a social problem, a social issue, and uh, and that was amply demonstrated afterwards. Uh, by the same token, when uh, 7-7 took place in Britain and when uh, the four uh, bombers detonated themselves in London transport uh, uh, in the day when uh, Britain uh, had uh, started to um, to uh, become uh, the president of the European Union and uh, on the very day when um, Britain was uh, granted the Olympic, Olympic Games of 2012 over Paris. Uh, then uh, a number of people in France said, you know, this shows how naive the Brits are. I mean, with their policy of communalism, of separate development between uh, Muslims and non-Muslims, uh, this is what it leads to. And uh, they relied extensively on community leaders uh, who would tip British police about the suspicious activities of some. And due to the war in Iraq, uh, a number of those community leaders then decided that they would not tip uh, the Brits, uh, the British authorities anymore, because they disagreed fundamentally with Blair's policy in Iraq. And then as they were unable, as British authorities were unable to deal with these populations directly, but had to rely on go-betweens or on, on intermediaries, if I may say so, once those people stopped uh, cooperating with the Brits, uh, then the, the whole field became obscure, and that gave the possibility for uh, um, the... Um, terrorist activities. And that was followed then by what happened by a number of, of uh, plots that were uh, discovered at the last minutes, um, including the, the plot to bomb the, um, the, the, uh, the planes over the Atlantic in, in mid in uh, August 2006, the uh, attack on the Edinburgh airport, and so on and so forth, to end with uh, the um, University of Central uh, London graduates uh, Farouk Abdurrahman and Mutallib hiding uh, explosive in his underwear and uh, trying to uh, detonate the, um, uh, the, um, the plane in Detroit. Well, at least he did not manage to, so um, hopefully he, did not, he was not a good student at University of Central London, no offense meant, of course, uh, to this prestigious institution. Now, uh, the, um, so, to some extent, there was there was a feeling that uh, on both sides of the of the channel, uh, that uh, the other one was having everything wrong, and that uh, everyone was in his uh, right sense. That uh, uh, actually the French would say, "Well, we are the biggest Muslim country in Europe, with something like uh, ten percent, more or less ten percent of the French population today." including residents, and, but most of them being now citizens, who are from Muslim descent, and uh, in, the, in the French vocabulary, do not use Muslim communities, as you did, so I'll explain why. And, um, and since 9-11, we've seen nothing happening. Nothing happened in France in terms of terrorism. On the, on the contrary, uh, there were uh, social movements, movements of social protest that um, including Muslims and non-Muslims alike. I mean, people who uh, who had the, the harsh life of uh, unemployment and uh, underskilled uh, uh, jobs and the like, or no jobs at all. But it, there was no such thing as 
mobilization by terrorist groups. And uh, it even went to the point where uh, local Muslim groups or associations would uh, tell and would tip the authorities if they saw something suspicious because they did not want to jeopardize their own, um, uh, their own integration into French society uh, because some uh, would um, deal into violent uh, action and then um, have the, the bulk of uh, Muslim citizens as um, uh, Fawaz mentioned earlier on uh, bear collective blame for that and um, allow the extreme right to, uh, to build on that. Now, in order to, to, to understand um, those diverging histories of, um, of the way uh, uh, populations from Muslim descent settled in Britain and France and how policies were at first quite different and finally, in a way, um, not merged but find much more common ground now than they did in the past and uh, largely but not only because of the threat of terrorism but also because there's been over the last 30 years or 40 years a, a significant uh, emergence of, uh, of how should I say a middle class from Muslim descent and a significant upward social mobility uh, which came earlier in Britain and later in France, but this had to do also, as we shall see, because the populations were different originally. Uh, in order to understand that, I think we have to get some uh, historical background and um, to see how um, each of those two countries with their own tradition dealt with those uh, new uh, populations. Let me uh, start with uh, the French case, not that I consider that it is better, but uh, for, because it's maybe the least familiar to you. Uh, the French system uh, always, uh, from time immemorial, and at least uh, to back to the, the French Revolution, perceived itself as a system that was both strongly centralized i.e. Uh, it was centralized because we had an absolute monarchy as opposed to what you had here. And then the Jacobin uh, Republic was also very much uh, a central thing. And the French Revolution was, in a way, uh, a means to, to, to have the state even more centralized. But by the same token, it was very much open to, uh, to foreigners. And uh, the, the condition was uh, that foreigners would um, assimilate into French culture. And, uh, you know, just like in uh, ancient Greeks, Greece, sorry, uh, people would say that you're not Greek by birth, but you're Greek by the palestra, which is the uh, gymnasium or the high school, if you wish, because you're Greek if you speak Greek, if you share Greek culture. By the same token, and that was very true all along the 19th and the 20th century, at least until World War II. Uh, what was uh, important for, uh, for the French was to bring people in who would then, after one generation, um, disappear as foreign elements and be incorporated into, uh, into the French system. And if you looked, I mean, this is now common knowledge, but when I was a child, uh, 
if you looked in, the, in, the, in any page of the Paris phone book, there are no phone books anymore uh, now because we have cell phones, uh, you would see a number of names uh, like mine, for instance, which is from Czech descent, uh, and people who considered themselves as entirely French and uh, who make no differentiation, who may, have, uh, uh, may speak their, their parents' language or who um, may, be, uh, may be practicing uh, their religion in, uh, which, uh, whatever it was, but it, that was considered as secondary and uh, that was considered as something that did not interfere in public life. There was a, 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 a very strong um, break between public and private life and this is what the French call laïcité, uh, which is not exactly secularism, it's, it's in a way stronger than secularism. Uh, it means that the state does not um, recognize any established religion. I mean, there is no Church of France as there is a Church of England. And uh, if you go to the Church of England to marry, no one marries anymore in those days, but uh, if you uh, have this fantasy, uh, this remote fantasy, then um, you don't need to go to uh, any other public office because it's, uh, it's, uh, it's valid. But if you go to a Catholic church or to a mosque, then you have to uh, have a civil marriage also. Um, in France, um, a religious marriage is not valid uh, from whichever religion, and you have to. Uh, so um, this, was, uh, this was the way the French system dealt with foreigners. And um, the, before World War II, uh, most foreigners came from Eastern and Southern Europe. Uh, and they were very welcome because uh, since uh, the beginning of the 19th century, the French didn't have many children. They enjoyed a good life, so they would not want to share it with too many people. And uh, they, um, they, would not, uh, they, they would not really emigrate. I mean, uh, French, wh why would you leave France? Uh, so uh, they're, um, they're, uh, they would not go to... Um, to America, uh, they would not go to Australia and the like, or in very small numbers. And uh, France was mainly a country of immigration, i.e. people coming in, more than it was a country of emigration. Um, then uh, when the, the empire um, started to be dismantled after uh, World War II, uh, a number of, uh, of people from former French colonies, mainly in North Africa and former uh, West Africa, came to settle in France, which is to some extent a paradox because uh, uh, those countries had fought wars, some of them, like Algeria, for instance, to be independent, and then some of their citizens would come to uh, the country that they had fought not to be citizens of France anymore, uh, or of Britain or whatever. But then. This was driven mainly by uh, economic uh, reasons. And um, uh, originally, uh, people who came would come as single, as, as males. I mean, they, they, were, they may have been married at home, but they came as males and as, um, as, as, as labor force. I mean, they, uh, they were an imported labor force, what we call in French, travailleurs immigrés, uh, immigrant workers. And uh, their, their view was that they would stay in France for, uh, 
the time necessary to, uh, to have enough money so that they would go back to their country of origin, buy a cab or a, a cafe, and then live happy for the rest of their life and send their cousin in their stead in France and so on and so forth, what we call the, the migratory noria, with the, which is the name of the, uh, the uh, water elevating wheel in the, in the Muslim world. And uh, this, to some extent, did not help for settlement of a stable population in France because they, they would come and go, except for the Algerians, who had special uh, status uh, because of the, of the agreements uh, that were signed after independence. And Algerians brought their families much earlier on because they were, they were allowed to. And this was the first category of people from Muslim descent who were massively uh, sedentarized or settled in, uh, in France. But uh, what, what happened was that until uh, the, uh, the mid-1970s, uh, until the first uh, uh, oil crisis uh, uh, that was subsequent to the, uh, what you may call, according to your religious preferences, the Yom Kippur War or the Ramadan War or the October War, if you're a French secularist or laic, uh, uh, then and the, the skyrocketing of the, of, the, of the oil prices, which was part and parcel of a major economic crisis and, a, and of major structural changes within Western economy, uh, posted jobs, unskilled jobs, uh, which were the jobs that were uh, uh, the ones that uh, people from uh, North Africa and unskilled uh, workers uh, uh, had, disappeared. And then you had a whole generation of people who went on the dole and of children who had no great father image. And, uh, and then you had, you had a major crisis, a major crisis which took place um, at a time when uh, French authorities wanted to give um, um, incitements to those people to go back home. But they wouldn't, and uh, because no one had experienced a long economic crisis, and they would stay. They would stay, and uh, not only would they stay, because they thought that the crisis would not last, but they brought their family in, and then the whole landscape changed. When you had travailleurs immigrés, that is to say a population which was essentially uh, male and employed, you had now a population which was neither travailleur because they were many of them were out of work, nor immigré because uh, many of them were born or if not born had been raised in France, and then you had suddenly a settled population, which was which would not define itself first and foremost as a labour force, but as a population that was questioning its relation to citizenship, to integration to European cultural values and uh, that was asking you know where they were and where they were uh, going. In one of the books that uh, Fawaz did not uh, mention, which was my first, but you could not mention them all of course, uh, my first, uh, just kidding him, um, uh, my first book on, on this issue but it was not translated into English, so it was the only one, which I called Les banlieues de l'Islam, the, the outskirts of Islam if you want. Uh, which I published in 1987. For when I was doing the research for that book, I, I was in the northern uh, 
part of Marseille, which is a city in the south of France, where uh, Sir Howard Davis taught, so it's a city which is dear to the heart of LSE. And, um, and then I, I visited a Muslim association there, and there was a young guy, and uh, he, um, we were having a talk, and I said, oh, by the by, are you French or Algerian? And I utter his answer in French for those who understand, and I retranslate. So he answered with a very strong, thick uh, Marseillais accent of the south. He said, Je suis ni Marseillais, je suis ni uh, Algérien, ni Français. Je suis Marseillais et musulman. T'es con. Which means I'm uh, neither French nor Algerian. I'm Marseillais. I eat turf, my feet on the local turf, and musulman and Muslim with my, uh, my head in the, in the sky, right? You know, as if you were fighting against two states that were trying to, you know, uh, uh, say that strip him open or and, uh, and that he had, he had fought for an identity which was different, uh, which he would build himself. And the fact that the identity was expressed with that strong, thick accent, which was not at all an Arab accent, but a typical Marseillais accent was extremely interesting. Um, so this is where we were say in the, in, the, in the early 1980s, before the political dimension of the problem started to rise. Now, let's go back to the other side of the, of the channel. And um, let me just say in, in passing, before I forget, that in terms of religion and in terms of um, religious identity, until 1973, there was a very, very low level of religious identification. Uh, there was a mosque, a central mosque in Paris that had been created in, uh, opened in uh, 1926, but it was considered by um, uh, people from North Africa to be under the control of uh, the French state or of uh, North African Muslims who had worked with the French state. So it was not perceived as, um, as, as a good place to go, particularly at a time when um, identification, uh, political identification and identity was mainly along national lines, uh, ideological, lefty, third worldist line, and Islam was not really a language that was being st uh, spoken. And um, another issue was that there were very few mosques or prayer rooms. There were some, but the, re the real boom of prayer rooms in France took place after 1973, that is to say, when people had internalized the fact that now they were settled for good on French soil. And as you will see, this was totally different in, uh, in Britain. In Britain, um, uh, one thing which was very different in both uh, the, the place of origin and the, the, the country of reception was that in India, I mean, in the Indian subcontinent, uh, British India, in the Raj, if you should if you'd rather, for the uh, people who are nostalgic about the empire, uh, in the in the Raj, uh, Muslims were a minority. They had been in power until 1857, until uh, until uh, the Delhi uh, uh, issue and. Um, and after 1957, there was no Sultanate of Delhi anymore, after the Sipahi revolt. 
ends uh, Britain ruled. That meant that Muslims who had been until then a minority but a ruling minority who were able to impose, thanks to the state, the uh, obedience to Sharia laws, for, uh, for Muslims at least, Muslims suddenly were left without a state. And also, they, were, they found themselves in, in, if I may say so, a Hindu ocean, uh, with a strong capacity to, you know, to, to assimilate everything in, its, in an, in an all-pervasive culture. And uh, subcontinental Islam has many features in it which are still very much uh, loaded with the Hindu culture, uh, particularly in, uh, in Sufi Islam and uh, Barelvi Islam. And um, so, as opposed to North Africa or West Africa, where uh, power was not in the hands of Islamic rulers anymore uh, when the French came, but where the majority of society remained Muslim, and when there was a, an overall Muslim control uh, of social life, in, in, in the Raj it was not the case anymore. Therefore, uh, Muslims in the Raj had to build uh, institutions to define themselves very strongly, to, to build borders, barriers, and uh, to fight against the all-pervasive Hindu culture, and uh, to implement a Sharia for their own um, in the absence of a state that would implement it. And this is why from uh, uh, the first uh, movement that was created was the famous, or infamous, the way you look at it, uh, Deobandi School in 1867 uh, in Deoband, a place which was close to Delhi. Um, so ten, 10 years after the, the fall of Delhi in, in 1857. And the Deobandi school uh, was something that uh, intended to provide your average Muslim in, uh, in the subcontinent with a set of rules that were easy to understand that would organize or reorganize your life according to Sharia uh, um, rules. And uh, when you go, as of today, in uh, Deobandi Mosque, whether it is in, uh, in Delhi or in uh, Bradford, uh, usually you have something which is called Dar al-Fatwa, or the house for fatwa, for religious edicts in, in the mosque. And in the good old days, people would sit on the floor. They still do. They use no chairs. But they would, uh, they would answer um, letters. Now they answer the phone or they answer emails. And uh, they sit on the floor because the prophet liked to sit on the floor. But there is nothing uh, uh, about computers in the in the sacred text, so it's no problem. And uh, they uh, the edict rules and the the, the the Obandis had have a collections of hundreds and of and hundreds of thousands of fatwas since their inception, in order to to reorganize this life, which allowed the community to function apart from the Hindu community at large. Uh, and um, that created something which, of course, was favored by, uh, the, by British rulers in the sort of divide ut imperes, divide and rule policy, which uh, created separate constituencies for Hindus, Muslims, and Sikhs, uh, Muslims and Sikhs 
to uh, six to um, elect their representatives, and which ultimately would lead to the partition of uh, of India and Pakistan in, in 1947. Something which did not happen on on a sort of faith-based thing, but rather on uh, something that had to do with religious belonging. And uh, Pakistan was not created uh, by uh, people who were uh, what we would call now Salafi Muslims or jihadist Muslims. Muhammad Ali Jinnah was uh, uh, Britain-educated, uh, and um, well, even though Farooq Abdurrahman Muttalib was also Britain-educated, uh, but uh, uh, not to, uh, to insult Jinnah's memory, I think uh, that he was not a very religious Muslim. Uh, in the way he ate and drank and, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but the issue was that Muslims, sociological Muslims, if you wish, would have the state of their own. And uh, Pakistan was created in 48 as a state for Muslims, 47, sorry, as a state for Muslims, as Israel was created in 48 as a state for Jews, more than a Jewish state. It was a Judenstaat, not a Judischerstaat, right? So, when those people came to um, to the um, to Britain uh, in uh, in um, after World War II, and particularly after 1947, they uh, they were already prepared to um, dealing with an environment which was non-Muslim, and they had already built instruments to function on their own through the Deobandi uh, system, uh, through some others, Ahli Hadith, Jamaat al-Tabligh, Barelvi, and so on and so forth. I have no time to uh, get into detail with that, but I'll be happy to take the questions if you have any. And when they came here, they met with uh, a host society that was also uh, very keen to, um, to deal with a juxtaposition of identities, far more than was the case in France, which was sort of all-pervasive and which wanted to integrate everyone. Uh, being British is one thing in terms of citizenship. Before that, you were a subject, but now you're a citizen. But under British, under the umbrella of British citizenship, you have different nationalities, as you well know. You can be English, you can be Scottish, you can be Welsh, you can be Irish, sort of starts uh, to be difficult, and, uh, and so on and so forth. And uh, you can become British, but as far as I know you cannot become English, either you are or you are not, and, uh, but I'll be happy to be contradicted. And uh, I've not tried, and uh, yet. And uh, the, um, uh, in a way, the British system offered such populations which had already built a sort of cultural niche of their own within the former Raj, if you wish, uh, offered them a spot where, or a place, where they could develop this way of not being integrated in the French understanding of the world, that is to say where there was a total differentiation of culture, religion on the one hand, and um, uh, politic and civic participation on the other, 
but where this was all lumped together. Something that relied uh, primarily, as I mentioned earlier on, on, on go-betweens, on community leaders, and so on and so forth. This is why I uh, mentioned earlier on that this, uh, this concept of community that you mentioned is perfectly uh, describes very well what took place in Britain, but does not describe what took place in France because the French were hostile to the very notion of a community that would mediate between the citizen and the state, right? Or there are always bodies that mediate, but fixed and ascriptive communities, if you want. And in, in the Raj, I mean, the, the, those, those policies were called uh, communal policies. I mean, communalism is, is the, the term in English which was used to describe the policy that differentiated the Sikhs from the Muslims and the, and, and the Hindus. Now, um, and because of that, and I mentioned earlier on that most mosques uh, started to flourish or to boom in France after the crisis, the economic crisis of the mid-1970s when those questions of identities that were exemplified by this little anecdote I told you about the Marseillais et Musulman guy, uh, and that you know, mosques were to a large extent a response to a system where, a situation where suddenly people had lost their working class identity, their labor force identity, didn't know anymore whether they were still Algerians, they were already French, and so on and so forth. In Britain, on the contrary, you had a significant uh, emergence of the mosque phenomenon as early as, as 1947. And why was it? Not only because you, want, you had people who wanted to differentiate themselves from the, uh, the surrounding uh, non-Muslim population where the Brits in general would uh, take the place of the Hindus of the Raj, but also because within the community the Barelvis would have their own constituency. The Deobandis would have their own constituencies. The Ahle Hadith would have their own constituencies. The Jamaat et Tablis would have their own constituencies. And they would not pray in the same mosque. Uh, when British um, communal institutions tr started to try to, to, to boost those institutions because they thought that it was, it was a, an interesting means of social control for populations that were... Uh, facing serious uh, challenges that were underpaid and so on and so forth that, you know, that were likely to be dangerous and that, that you had to control and controlling it at, at, at the lowest cost possible um, consisted in helping those community leaders you know, with some subsidies and then they would have their masks and they would control and they would deliver votes afterwards to the local labor or uh, and I'll mention that in a minute. But, for instance, in Birmingham in the 1970s, if I remember well, there was um, uh, a strong will from the, the local council, I don't remember what it's called in English, in England, uh, to have one big uh, unitary mosque. Uh, that in one week, the, the Deobandi imam would say the khutbah, and the other week, the, the, the Friday sermon, the other week would be the Bairavi imam. But the Deobandi refused to pray uh, under um, uh, Deobandi imam the Deobandi, sorry, refused to pay under Barelvi imam because the Barelvis are Sufis 
and after the sermon they would sing hymns to the Prophet Muhammad which the others considered totally heretical and that went to, the, it went to arms and so on and so forth. So to a large extent this also had to do with the fact that you already had a fragmented institutional um, uh, established uh, Muslim culture that was transferred from the Raj into, into Britain. Another difference was that in order to have French citizenship, uh, you needed to, um, to spend five uh, whatever years in France to show that you had uh, command of French and so on and so forth. Whereas in Britain at the time, where there was a major push factor from this rainy country to America, to Australia, where the population was dwindling, then, and because Britain was concerned with the loss of its role in the world, then uh, because of that, uh, Commonwealth, people coming from the Commonwealth had a residency uh, permit in Britain and were given, without any, any further ado, uh, voting rights and uh, access to social security and everything, so on and so forth. So that allowed for those uh, community leaders to control the votes of their communities. People who would not, did not really understand the British system, didn't know the language, would then vote in groups as they were instructed by their leader to do, who would then be a broker who would bring 200 votes on the table and then ask his MP to do this or that. Something which definitely was quite different from, from the other situation. So to, to sum it up, in Britain, a situation which was far more communal, uh, far more organized around community issues, uh, which was far more controlled, if you wish, when religion was playing an important role uh, in social control, but where you had, at the same time, already by the uh, 1970s a rather significant uh, Muslim, if I may say so, middle class, or middle class from Muslim descent, something which did not exist in France. Uh, why was that? Uh, largely because uh, this uh, Muslim middle class, quote-unquote, was uh, consisted of, at that time, mainly of people who had come from uh, East Africa, um, uh, Indian Muslims from East Africa, who then had been expelled by the Idi uh, Amin Dada and his likes, and who went to, to, came to Britain. And they came to Britain with their cultural, their social, and their financial capital. And that developed into, into a middle class, which was not the case, the case in France, because most of the people who came were from rural background and had unskilled jobs and they were very badly hit by the crisis in the mid-1970s. So this is where we stood from the 1970s onwards and uh, when the issue started to be more and more political because no one or close to nobody knew about Islam in Europe at the time. And um, then in 1973 you had the oil boom which was uh, considered as an oil catastrophe from the consumer's point of view. The blame was put on the Arabs and Muslims and the like. 
1979, more important, you had the Iranian Revolution, the Islamic Revolution in Iran. And suddenly, Islam started to be perceived uh, as a threat. You had uh, every other day, you had Khomeini on TV um, that was preaching uh, hatred of the West, Margbar America, Margbar uh, whatever. And, um, and I remember uh, at the time I was uh, living in Egypt and uh, coming back from France from time to time. And one night on TV, I, so you had those uh, sermons by uh, Khomeini in, uh, and uh, this uh, demonstrations of clerics with Kalashnikovs. And then the next image, um, uh, footage of uh, an occupied factory in, uh, in France where uh, uh, workers, many of them were from North Africa, were praying on the parking lot of the occupied um, factory towards Mecca. So then the commentators decided that they would uh, dot the I's and cross the T's and uh, that uh, there was a direct correlation between uh, radical Islamism in Iran and uh, social movements in Europe that had a sort of Muslim flavor, which was not true. I mean, there was, even though, and we had evidence of that, even though uh, Iranian agents tried to, uh, tried to influence those, uh, uh, those people, uh, they did not succeed. But nevertheless, um, the self-definition of uh, people from Muslim descent in Europe, and who until then, at least in a country like France, did not really take this Islamic identity issue seriously, became more important because it was something that, you know, that, that, was, uh, that got more and more relevance at the world level. And uh, then you had, in the uh, in the nineteen uh, in the nineteen eighties, uh, uh, you had a number of petty issues uh, concerning uh, schools, concerning um, uh, mosques, and so on and so forth. Until one event, which I. Uh, uh, would like to focus on for a minute because uh, it, it happened in a very important year, which was 1989. Uh, when I ask you about 1989, and I tell you what, what are the peculiarities, what took place in 1989, I guess that most of you will answer that it's the, the, the Berlin Wall was the, was the big issue. But the, 1989 was also um, the Soviet pullout of Afghanistan uh, after they had been defeated by uh, jihad uh, financed by the CIA and the Gulf states. And also, in Europe, it was uh, on uh, Valentine's Day, 1989. Does anyone remember what took place on Valentine's Day, 1989? Were too many of you were too young to have written a, a Valentine's uh, postcard. Yes, exactly. The fatwa uh, rushed uh, Khomeini's um, fatwa against Salman Rushdie. Something which had to do with much wider issues, i.e., the fact that um, the next day, the 15th of February, the Soviets would pull out from Afghanistan, and it was the sign that whereas 
Khomeini had failed to mobilize a wide constituency of Muslims against the West, Sunni jihadists uh, backed by the U.S. and, um, and conservative uh, peninsula, Arabian Peninsula regimes had managed to oust the Soviets from um, Afghanistan, something that would lead later on to the, uh, to the fall of the Berlin Wall. But, so, in Britain, this was a cataclysm. Suddenly, you had someone who uh, was a British citizen who uh, was sentenced to death from far, from, uh, from afar by uh, Ayatollah Khomeini. And in Islamic law, a fatwa is totally irrelevant if it does not apply in a territory which is controlled by the issuing fatwa authority. You know, you issue a fatwa if you're the mufti, or mufti is the person who issues the fatwa or the religious edict. Um, if you're the mufti of Azerbaijan, you may issue a fatwa on Azerbaijan. Doesn't apply in Turkey or doesn't apply in uh, in Somalia, unless you consider that the whole world is your constituency as far as fatwas are concerned. And to some extent, what happened was that. With the fatwa, in a way, Khomeini made Europe, and Britain in particular, part, if you wish, of the world of Islam. A world of Islam which he thought he would not entirely control, but on which his edicts were valid, which was a sea change. You know? And that raised a tremendous questions in Britain, and uh, the fatwa in itself did not come in a void, you know. Um, a month before the fatwa, uh, on the 14th of January, the, the Bradford Council of Mosques had organized the famous uh, auto da fe of the uh, satanic verses in the um, central square of, uh, of Bradford, and um, which was a very strange event. Uh, originally, the opposition to the Rajdi book came from pro-Saudi uh, and Muslim brother, brothers circles, who, uh, whose line of attack was that as uh, Anglicanism was an established religion in Britain, and therefore that blasphemy in Britain was a crime punishable by law if it were anti-Anglican blasphemy, you could anti-Catholic blasphemy, anti-Jewish, and that was not uh, a crime because these were not established religion. They asked for blasphemy to be uh, to be uh, you know punishable if it were against any religion. It did not work, and then a number of people who were against the Saudis said that uh, the Saudis were not interested in the in the family of Muhammad because the satanic verses um, were mainly. <coughs> Uh, targeting the uh, the prophet and his wives, uh, in terms of uh, I mean this is where sensibilities were hurt the most, if you wish, and uh, that the Saudis uh, who do not worship the prophet at all were not interested, but they were more interested in the in the um, in the, the wives of the Saudi royal family, because you may remember that when the BBC wanted to air um, a film, a movie called Death of the Princess, that uh, 
told about the stoning of an adulterous princess in, the, in Saudi Arabia, the Saudis threatened the Brits not to buy any fighter planes anymore, and the British Minister of Defense then had to rush to Riyadh to promise that the film would not be aired. So then the, um, the, it was taken down. This was, and, and then the, the Barelvis in, uh, in Bradford took over. And they had this book burning that they, they thought would display to the public their anger and grief at being insulted by the book. And the media were not really interested. No one really came. And they had to do the shootings of the, uh, to, to film the, the event. And then they would send and sell the, the images to the media. But the media thought, contrarily to what the Muslim of Muslim Council of Mosul in Bradford thought, they suddenly found that this was a good story because it would show that Muslims were fanatics. And so they showed on and on the movie, reinforcing the fact that uh, uh, Muslims were into modern inquisition, that this was a book burning that was tantamount to Hitler burning books and the like. Whereas the Muslim uh, the, the Bradford Council of Mosque thought differently. The, the funny side of the story is that while those images which proved to be uh, major damage to the image of Muslims in Britain in the world were aired, nevertheless the royalties were uh, paid to the Muslim, to the Bradford Council of Mosques. And uh, the, um, so this, this was one event in 1989 that to some extent showed the limits of the communalist, if you wish, British model. Uh, because even though you had some sort of social control over Muslims in Britain, that was exercised by imams, go-betweens, community leaders, people who brokered their votes, uh, the votes of the community to, um, to members of parliament and, and so on and so forth. Nevertheless, these were becoming obsolete politics because there was a feeling of identity problems, of social problems among the youth that would not listen to the old guys and who would take to the streets and demonstrate because they felt that they had been offended by uh, Salman Rushdie. I will not deal with the contents of the book, but we can discuss it later if we still have time. Then, the same year, 1989, something took place in France, which was quite the opposite of the Rushdie affair, if you wish. And the Rushdie affair could never have taken place in France because there was no such communal identity. And because no one felt the need among French Muslims, probably, to, to go and attack the tenets of the identification of the Prophet Muhammad. Because, in my view, in, in, uh, in Raj, uh, or in subcontinental Muslim culture, it was, it was so significant. Uh, and it, 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 it was the, the pedestal, if you want, to, the, to, the, to a communal structure which was perceived as uh, something that was, was choking people by uh, intellectuals like Rushdie and the like, that he thought that he had to fight against that and use uh, harsh language in order, to, um, in order to get rid of it. Whereas in the French case, you didn't have such a strong communal identity uh, system and you know there was no need felt. But on the opposite, what we had in France was an affair that could never have taken place in Britain, uh, 
which, is, which was the first controversy about hijab in schools. Uh, one day in the, uh, in the fall, three teenage girls, uh, pupils, came to school in, uh, in an outskirt uh, labor, uh, labor class um, uh, high school um, close to Paris with uh, hijab, something which was not perceived as uh, acceptable. Uh, by, uh, by the French school system, and there was strong controversy. Some people in France said it's no problem, uh, better for them to come to school than to go out of school, and so on and so forth. Uh, some started to say that uh, the, the schoolmaster was a racist, and, and so on, until the guy showed up on TV. He was uh, a black Caribbean, so it was uh, more complicated to, uh, uh, to, to work on that line. And uh, which does may not, uh, you know, not because you're a black Caribbean that you not, may not be an extreme rightist. That's another story. But uh, I mean, the sort of the, the first level of uh, of controversy was uh, sort of brushed aside immediately, and uh, that led to a decision uh, that said, okay, you can wear something as long as it is not perceived as offensive, and as long, as and then you had a number of cases that you know that were used mainly by Muslim Brother groups and Tablir groups to <coughs> boost their social importance. Because from the, the late 1980s onwards, you had this settled population that was now becoming French, and uh, that had French papers, French nationality. And um, that was trying to be more assertive in terms of identity and trying to reconcile the fact that you could be French, and as uh, Fawaz said earlier on, that you could be French and you, you could be Muslim, which was not perceived to be a problem in the secularism system. But then it meant also that if you wanted to be a Muslim, you had to implement Sharia for yourself and by your own standards. And 1989 was uh, a watershed year for uh, Muslim Brother denominations in, uh, in Europe, because until then, um, they would use in their names uh, the fact that the label they were in Europe. For instance, the uh, French Muslim Brother organization was called Union des Organisations Islamiques en France, the Union of Islamic Organizations in France, meaning that they did not feel they belonged France that they were located in France temporarily or what have you. In 1989, right before the Veil Affair, which they to a large extent engineered, they shifted the en into de, Union des Organisations Islamiques de France, Union of, Is of, Organic, of Islamic Organizations of France, i.e. they claimed their being French. And, they and from then on, they explained that Europe in France were now part of the Darul Islam, i.e. that for Muslims living in France, requirements of Sharia, or in uh, Britain, or in the Netherlands, and so on and so forth, should apply, and that the law of God was more important than the bylaws of the high school. And that led to a system that was, uh, you know, uh, conflictual for, uh, for the the, the ten years that uh, that followed. 
Now, this is where we were. I mean, in, in a way, the year 1989 exacerbated the difference between the two models. As I said, there could have been no hijab affair in, uh, in Britain because it was perfectly accepted within the framework of the communalist British policy that, you know, uh, female Muslim uh, students could go uh, to class with the hijab. And uh, this lasted uh, in, uh, during the, the 1990s. And uh, on the one hand, uh, in Britain, uh, you had a policy that was, that was developed vis-a-vis -vis what was happening in the, in the Muslim world at large and vis-a-vis -vis radical movements, which was dubbed by the very persons that, uh, that lived it, the politics of Londonistan, i.e. Uh, that London was the magnet, was the place for uh, uh, the Abu, uh, Abu Hamza al-Masris, the Abu Qatada al-Filastini, Abu Mus'ab al-Suri, and all the Abus, who uh, settled in the, uh, the Finsbury Park Mosque and uh, a few others, and um, who, um, in a way, uh, were good on speaking, on uh, talking, on uh, making revolutionary proclamations so that uh, the uh, apostate government of Egypt, of Libya, or what have you, would be toppled. but. I mean, the quid pro quo for their stay here was that they would be quiet on the English scene, they, that they would not ask their followers to do anything wrong uh, in Britain. And uh, this, um, th this policy was, was followed to, to a large extent until 7-7. Uh, um, the French did something completely different and because uh, British authorities believed that as the bulk of their population were subcontinental, Muslim population were subcontinental, and the majority of radicals were Arabs, there was no communication between them. There were two populations that were apart, except that due to the, the universality of, British la of English language, uh, everybody finally spoke English whether it was uh, the Abu Hamza al-Masri or, um, or, or, or the young kids from, from Pakistan. I remember having a, a long talk with Abu Hamza, whom I think you call Hook or Captain Hook in, uh, in Finsbury Park once, and uh, we, we spoke in, uh, in a Kyrene dialect, uh, which he enjoyed a lot, but I noticed that his, uh, his colloquial English was even better than his Kyrene dialect. Uh, he had started as his life as a bouncer in Brighton, so you know this may have. Uh, this is before. This was before his toba, before he uh, he repented, he recanted, and uh, the um, um, so this was something that 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 took place in the in the in the 1990s, and um, regimes in the in the Muslim world were furious. At, at Britain, because you know, why would they give shelter to those guys? And the Egyptians were uh, were furious. The Algerians were furious. And uh, during the civil war in Algeria, uh, the whole uh, GIA armed Islamic group establishment was was in Britain. And uh, Finsbury Park was the epicenter, if you wish, of the, what happened in, in in Algeria. 
And in order to understand what was taking place in Algeria, we would, we would come to London, which was what a, what a disaster for the French, what a national shame. And uh, so, um, in the meanwhile, there was a major shift within uh, radical policies in the, in the Muslim world, i.e., until 2001, uh, radical militants believed that um, the fight against what they called the nearby enemy, or al-Hadou al-Karib, i.e., the local regimes, was more important than the fight against the faraway enemy, al-Hadou al-Ba'id, i.e., the West, Israel, and what have you. Uh, and they had thought of that because they had suffered under nationalist governments, under Nasser and the like, who had repressed them in the name of national unity against Israel. So they said, and this was what they did when Sadat was assassinated, let's get rid of the nearby enemy first, have an Islamic state, and then we'll destroy Israel and the like. This failed. It failed in the 1990s, it failed in Egypt, it failed in Algeria, it failed in Bosnia, it failed in Chechnya, it failed, uh, you name it. And people like Ayman Zawahiri and Ben Laden, but uh, first and foremost Zawahiri, who is the, the thinker, the, the ideologue of Al-Qaeda, decided to reverse the priorities. So you had to um, attack the faraway enemy first, to expose him as a weak uh, enemy, and then you would mobilize uh, the, uh, your own constituency at home because it would show that the local despots, the apostates of Islam, as they say, could not be protected by their masters of the West who were now weak. And that uh, put into question the whole politics of Londonistan, for instance, because suddenly the West became a target, per se. Uh, that led to 9-11, which was uh, you know, the, the implementation of that, uh, that change of, of strategy. And uh, that would lead then to, um, in Britain, a little later on, to 7-7. Now, 7-7 was, in my view, uh, a major shock in Britain, uh, even bigger probably than, uh, than the Rushdie affair, because uh, uh, community leaders who were still trusted uh, by British authorities to deliver peace and social order among their constituents were suddenly finger-pointed and uh, were um, accused of not tipping British police, of not saying what they knew, and of being un-British, if you wish, of uh, not playing the game. And that led to this sea change, which I personally see, uh, but then again, this is debatable, uh, between a policy that ended with the Blair years, which was the sort of policy of multiculturalism, which, in my understanding, was a politically correct name for communalism, the old Raj policies, but with uh, a hip. Uh, clothing, cool, uh, cool dress, cool Britannia, salwar uh, kameez, and kum um, bandana, and and that was uh, and that led to the new course of that policy, which is now 
policy of de-radicalization, and um, which started with the brown years. I don't know if those years are brown or are black or what, but the um, and um, the problem with that, in, in my view, is that both the cool Britannia policy and the de-radicalization de-radicalization policy have a problem in common. That is to say that they, uh, they rely on a major misunderstanding between the two populations. And uh, because in both cases, population from Muslim descent is perceived as an other not as a part of the self, but as another. Another which was praised in, in the multi years and which is now being feared in the post-77 years. And it is fu functioning, still functioning both ways. Um, one example which will show you um, how I think the situation is, was structurally different, uh, but I'd, I'd, I'd love to be challenged on that also. Uh, on both sides of the channel, uh, I'm, I'm finished. Uh, the, um, in, uh, in Britain, you still have this very uh, important tradition of, uh, in the Pakistani or Indian community, of the Biradari marriage. I mean, Biradari is Indian, it's, a, it's an Aryan word, which is the same as brother, Baradar is a brother. In the, the brotherhood, in the um, in the widest sense, so you go and the father goes to uh, Pakistan and brings back a mate, uh, a bride or a bridegroom, who doesn't know Britain and so who can join, and then they build a family out of that, and it's within the marriage takes place within the community, and if possible with someone who comes from the place of origin, as opposed to that. In France, your average Algerian uh, young woman or Moroccan young woman doesn't want at all to have an Algerian boyfriend, and uh, not uh, not to mention husband. She is interested in the in the Gaul guy, and um, and so what we have now is, uh, and we have this debate on national identity um, by. Uh, Minister Eric Besson, who just left his wife for a young Tunisian girlfriend, so I think this will end this silly debate uh, in bed, as most things end in bed or at the dinner table in France. So this is what the, only, the only thing we have left. And uh, the, um, I know most most of the children which are born out of uh, people from uh, from Muslim descent in, in in France are now mixed. Well. All children are mixed, right? But the uh, um, and this is an, an important uh, fact. Now, uh, for the last thirty seconds that uh, Fawaz is conceding to me, um, I believe that in a way, you know, the models that were totally antagonistic originally have have worked far more towards each other. The uh, <coughs> British policy has uh, has relied less on this issue of community leaders and is now paying much more attention to individual expectations and to issues of upward social mobility and to 
what the, this big campaign that you had recently on Britishness, which was exemplified by uh, uh, someone like, what's the name of the former um, Labour foreign minister? Uh, Straw, Jack Straw, right? uh, who, who started this anti-Niqab campaign, something that was unthinkable in the cool Britannia years, totally unthinkable. We have been dubbed a fascist. And um, whereas in France, there's nowadays, and I'm not a Sarkozy guy, but it, it took place under Sarkozy, um, and I think it is positive, a much bigger awareness of the importance of cultural identity. And the fact that within the frame of, uh, of secularism, which is our established religion, um, we, um, there has to be much more recognition of the fact that uh, the plurality of cultures uh, is something that, uh, that is a plus, that is an asset and not a liability. Uh, cultures which are digested, which are, which are put together, and which, at the end of the day, lead to the building of a self, which is uh, open to the world and which is functioning. In my view, the, the big danger, and the, and the Dutch are in a much worse case than, uh, than the Brits for, for that effect, is to consider that before the stabbing of Theo van Gogh, you know, Islam was cool. I mean, we didn't, didn't care about them in their mosques and whatever. We don't want to see them. They're cool. The more beard, the more niqab, the better. Now, after the, th the stabbing of Theo van Gogh, it's all bad. Arson fires against Marsden. But, but what is in common with those two phases is that no Dutch relates to any Muslim. They don't go to bed together. I mean, I think I'm obsessed with that. They don't eat together, but... Uh, Dutch food is, this, is a catastrophe. Anyway, and, uh, and so on and so forth. So this, I believe, and this was uh, Professor uh, Mick Cox asked me to talk about food tonight. And uh, the, uh, so I believe that the, the big thing is, is, is the building. I mean, I just listened to, um, came out of a, a lecture by Minister Davut Oglu in the rival institution at uh, King's College on his side of the road. And uh, he was uh, telling, from his point of view, of course, his best interest, of course, that the, what was important was the, uh, the fact that uh, Europe was universal, he, including Turkey in Europe. And, uh, and this is what I believe we, we are building. This is our big challenge, uh, how to... Uh, enrich ourselves with our differences, but those differences do not have to remain differences. I mean, uh, if we're st within our societies, you know, there's always selves and others. I, I'm, I'm not like Professor Cox. I don't wear the same tie, and uh, we don't go to the same <laughs> tailor, and things like that. Don't wear the same glasses. But nevertheless, we have a complementarity, and we both <laughs> identify with ideas. Is that was OK? Was it? And, uh, Ideas with a capital I, his ideas. Uh, the, um, but the, the moment we start saying that we have, there are ascriptive differences between us, which are insuperable in the body politic, then we're in trouble.
we have 20 minutes for questions. It's okay, Jill? 20 minutes? Whatever you want. And let's take four questions at a time, and then we'll have you... Shall we give you a few, few seconds to relax? No, 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 it's okay. okay. My, my mouth is busy with drinking, right. but my ears are functioning. So four questions at a time, and then quick answers. So we'll have as many questions as possible. I'll try to have short answers, but we'll you know, the first question, I'm unable please. to. It's, it's, it's Gilles. It's Gilles. Hi, um, my name is Mehreen, and I wanted to know what you thought about the Swiss banning minarets. Okay. Please. L thank you very much for where, very, where are, very interesting are, talk. Oh, yeah. oh sorry. Can you hear me okay? Yeah, yes. Um, basically, I just wanted to ask a question about this idea of French tolerance um, regarding immigration up to the 1970s, because Actually, there are anti-immigrant riots in France in, in, in the 1920s against Italians and Portuguese. Also in the 1930s, obviously, the growth of anti-Semitism against Eastern European Jewish immigrants. So I think maybe that needs to be nuanced a little. And the second point is really the classic difference between the two cases of Britain and France is actually the legacy of the Algerian War. Uh, it's like what? The, the legacy of the Algerian War, uh -huh. um, which is a, was something you, you didn't really mention. And I think that if you look at, for example, the experience of the of the Arqui en France, mm -hmm. that is, um, is is quite relevant to why French immigrants have a different experience to say the case in Britain, um, because there's this legacy of this acrimonious war experience between the two. Okay. Thank you. Please, yes, go ahead, and then Emmanuel. Two points. The first is uh, the centrality, particularly as far as the Muslim community. The first is what? The centrality, as far as the Muslim community in this country is concerned, of, of Pakistan, and particularly, obviously, of Pakistan precariously, its precarious political position, possibly becoming a failed state, and the coming and going between the Muslim communities in this country and madrasas in uh, Pakistan, the radicalization and the impact of that really on, on the population here, simply in fear of, of terrorism and, and also of obviously the radicalization of Islamic student societies, which we've held, heard much more about uh, over obviously the last two weeks since the Detroit bomb, bomber incident. Thank you, please. Okay, so that's one, four. One, one no, 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 we'll no, take no, one more. That's, that's okay. enough. Uh, so, Londonistan, thank you for giving so much credit to Giles uh, Keepel. But he does not deserve, he does not, you could call me Giles. It's, uh, it's with one L. Giles with one L and Keppel with two Ps would make me a real Brit because there's a Keppel Street nearby, but we don't deal with those because the, 
their upward social mobility was uh, something they did with the Windsors, which we think is disgusting. <laughs> uh, Camilla is a couple, yeah. And um, so, Londonistan, no, I did not coin the word. I mean, the, I retranscribed it into, into Latin scripts, but it was used in Arabic by, uh, this is something that, was, that you, you could find in the, Arab, in the Arabic language press all the time. And, um, and I remember um, you know, staying with uh, Abu Hamza al-Masri uh, in, uh, in, in Finsbury Park and him mentioning laughingly Londonistan, you know, half jokingly, half saying. Uh, but it was, um, then you were nice to me because some say in Britain that it was coined by the French intelligence services pointing at this guy that you just mentioned, Guy Lee's something. And, uh, but no, it's, I, was, I just translated it from the, this was the term that was used in Arabic. So, so it's, you know, it's useful to know the languages. This is the minimal requirement for when you pretend to. Uh, the minarets thing. Uh, I believe that uh, Switzerland is, is uh, f having a major crisis of identity today, which is not only due to the fact that the, the f some of them fear that they are be being sort of eaten up from from below by Muslim immigrant, immigrants, though what would um, Geneva banks or Zurich banks look like without uh, huge amounts of money coming from, uh, from Arabs of the Gulf? That's uh, a side question. But it's mainly because, uh, in my view, um, Switzerland now is totally at loss uh, because of the European Union process. Um, they don't know where they are anymore. And uh, talking about their banks, I mean, they, when they had to deal with the Brits, with the French, with the Germans individually, they could just uh, show them a middle finger. Nowadays, they have to, to deal with the major pressure of the European Union uh, fiscal system as a whole. And uh, they're at loss. Their subsidies for uh, alpine milk and the like are being questioned. And uh, I believe that it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, Muslims in, uh, in Switzerland to some extent are bearing the blame of, a, of, a, of an identity crisis in Switzerland which doesn't have to do with uh, Islam only. It also has to do with the fact that uh, the, the Swiss are, uh, do, uh, are facing a, a major challenge to their, to their identity within Europe. Um, French tolerance, haha. Uh, -ha, uh, French was uh, xenophobic, has always been xenophobic. You're right. I mean, when I was a kid, my, my father, as a Czech, was uh, was uh, always uh, complaining that he was uh, he was looked at by people that said uh, you're not French. Um, so uh, this is why he insisted on being so so much French. And um, something I don't have to do, thanks to his sacrifice. Uh, the, um, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, there was a lot of xenophobia uh, against Italians who were accused to, to use knives against, uh, there was anti-Semitism and so on and so forth. But this, these were um, elements in the chemistry of integration. I mean, there is no uh, straight path to integration. It's a dialectical process. And uh, when you have an influx of foreigners who take, who are ready to accept jobs which are underpaid, as opposed to the organized working class, 
definitely this working class does not look as those foreigners with a, with a benevolent eye. And uh, there is a lot of antagonism and, uh, and, you know, what we used to call the yellow unions, i.e. the, uh, or the yellows, i.e. coming from the fact that the Chinese immigrants would accept any job at any, any price. And they were liked by the factory owners and disliked by the unions. And that led to racism against them and so on and so forth. So to a very strong level of social racism. But after a while, <coughs> those people would, would, uh, would be organized uh, even, even before they were ever citizens by the unions. And uh, the main um, we have one minute to go. And, uh, the main factor of integration. Do not worry; it will be quick. Uh, in in the French system, were were the unions and the Communist Party, and they identify with not the Umma at the time, but the Uma, as for l'Humanité, the the uh, newspaper of the Communist Party, and they would they would get rid of their immigrant identity in order to become proletarians members of the uh, proletarian international in order to, to destroy the French system together with their French comrades, the workers of the world, unite. And then, little by little, they would become French petit bourgeois, which is the, the aim of anyone. Um, legacy of the Algerian war, well, the, those two have become uh, petit bourgeois now. Uh, the Harki phenomenon, no, not everybody maybe knows what the Harkis are. They were people who fought for France during the Algerian war, who were Algerians and Muslims. And uh, many of them were slaughtered by, uh, by the um, independent Algerians. Many uh, went to, to France. I don't think that the Harki issue was, was a problem in terms of xenophobia, except that the Harkis, who usually did not choose to uh, to emigrate, but who were compelled to because otherwise they would have been slaughtered in Algeria, uh, did not come to work. You know, So they were regrouped in uh, camps, they were in forests and the like, they were fed, and, um, and they developed a totally marginal culture. But nowadays this phenomenon is quasi over because Harki children are, uh, I had a number amongst my students, which are very elite students as you can imagine. So. It's, um, it's not, uh, there's still a legacy, but I'm not sure. I mean, this issue of the Algerian war was an impediment for many Algerians to accept to take French citizenship until in the 1980s, the failure of the Algerian state was such that, you know, they made the step and became French. Uh, failed states. Well. We're lucky, even though Algeria has failed, it's the third richest Arab economy, uh, we're lucky not to have Pakistan in our backyard. There's no doubt about that. And uh, one of the other major problems, I guess, facing uh, the Islamic issue in Britain, politically, is, 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 is Pakistan. Uh, and uh, when we have uh, British-French meetings of uh, experts, diplomats, and the like, I mean, this is the obsession on the British side what is going to become of Pakistan, because Pakistan means that kids go and train in camps in, uh, in the, in the uh, FATA, in the federally administrative tribal areas, come back to Birmingham, and so on and so forth. And uh, the 7-7 bombers' odyssey was a clear example of that. Uh, 
And uh, so well, I know Yemen has replaced it to some extent uh, as the University of uh, Central London uh, graduates demonstrated. Uh, so the, um, this is, the, I, and I, you know, to some extent, uh, Pakistan is a domestic, uh, is, a, is a British domestic issue. The empire strikes back. What else can I say? Thank you. Thanks Thank you, you very much. Thanks.